This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So a lot of headlines when it comes to uh, COVID and uh, the vaccine, as there always are. Charlie, of course, talking about them. So too, Nancy Lyons. We've got U.S. educators backing vaccines. Australia struggling to control outbreaks after months of lockdowns in its uh, main cities. Japan, serious cases continuing to to rise. We are awaiting news from U.S. regulators on getting a third jab for people with compromised immune systems. The FDA expected to update authorizations on the inoculations from BioNTech and its partner Pfizer as well as Moderna. That could happen as soon as today. Meantime, the top infectious disease doctor in the U.S., top COVID uh, voice really out of the government, Dr. Anthony Fauci, provided some clarity this morning on CBS about who exactly should get that COVID booster. We don't feel at this particular point that apart from the immune compromise, we don't feel we need to give boosters right now. But importantly, We are following this in real time, literally on a weekly and monthly basis. We're following cohorts of individuals, elderly, younger individuals, people in nursing homes to determine if, in fact, the level of protection is starting to attenuate. And when it does get to a certain level, we will be prepared to give boosters to those people. I want to bring in our guest, uh, a great voice for us throughout the pandemic. Dr. Chris Byer is professor of epidemiology and public health and human rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Byer, also senior scientific liaison at the COVID Vaccine Prevention Network. He is with us uh, on this Thursday on the phone in New York City. Dr. Byer, nice to have you back with us. How are you? How's everything going? Well, thank you, Carol. Good to be with you. Um, Well, I I don't know that many of us expected to be back here with over 100,000 new infections a day in the U.S. Uh, So it's it's a challenging moment. Um, But, you know, the good news is that the the emergency use authorizations really are holding up against Delta. They are providing robust protection against hospitalization and death. But on the downside, we're we're just a little over half of, of all Americans who are eligible fully immunized, and that's too low. So herd immunity... Not even close. No, not even close. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where we actually have vaccine surplus. Hmm. Uh, we're kind of the envy of the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we're, we're worldwide, we're at something like, you know, about 16% of the rest of the world has been immunized. Many, many places, no access to vaccines or no access to high-efficacy vaccines. Uh, and we have three really great vaccines, uh, the J&J single dose and Pfizer and Moderna. So how do you feel, you know, as we await maybe some updates in terms of a third shot for some people when it comes to COVID, mm-hmm. a booster shot, if you will, uh, we're expecting to hear, you know, maybe from the FDA today. What's your thinking on that guidance in terms of that versus prioritizing the world just getting a first shot into at least everyone, or as close to as many as possible? Yeah, yeah, it's a very important question. Well, I think the first thing to say, uh, and of course Dr. Fauci spoke to this today Mm -hmm. in an earlier clip, is that 
for people with immunocompromised, the immune suppressed, and these include folks, for example, who've had uh, a solid organ transplant, like a kidney or a liver transplant, and who have to be on immune suppression so they don't reject the organ, uh, or people on steroids, people on cancer chemotherapy, folks uh, who really, as it turns out, did not have as vigorous enough responses to the two-dose regimen. So for them, this is not really a booster. It's mm. really more like completing full immunization. And it does seem that those people really do need a third dose. Uh, there's about between 2 and 3 million Americans who would fit into that category. Uh, and, of course, we have plenty of vaccine. And we do expect the FDA today to announce uh, that third doses will be, um, will be suggested for the immunosuppressed. That's different from the rest of us. The question for people with healthy immune systems and who are eligible, so this is the 12 and olders, um, really is, you know, is the immunity that we have from the vaccines persisting? And that's a question that's still ongoing. Mm -hmm. Remember that everybody who is in these vaccine trials is being followed for a full two years. So we're still assessing the immunogenicity there. And what it looks like right now is our problem is not among the immunized, and it's not because vaccines are waning uh, over time. That, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is, of course, that too many people are not immunized at all. Right, right. And that's where the hospitalizations and deaths are happening. And the challenge that, you know, children under age 12 are still not eligible. The trials for both Pfizer and Moderna in children are underway. We're not going to have those data probably for several months. Uh, so in the meantime, they remain vulnerable. And uh, we are seeing, of course, an increase in hospitalizations in younger people. Because Americans over uh, age 65 have done way better. 80% of Americans over age 65 are immunized. You know, a lot of seniors remember polio and smallpox. Right. They're from earlier periods where we didn't have this kind of vaccine uh, hesitancy to the degree that we do now. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And you're right, when we break it down to demographics, you see definitely some very different um, patterns when it comes to who's taking the vaccine, who, who isn't. Still with us is Dr. Chris Byer, Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health and Human Rights at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Still with us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Byer, I just want to go back to what you said when we talk about the uh, those with Weak immune systems, uh, the immunocompromised, uh, if you will, it is a relatively small number, correct? That's right. It's it's uh, between about two and three uh, percent of folks in the United States. So that that's still a fairly large number of people, but only about at the most three percent of Americans. Okay, because I just do wonder if you've had people coming up to you, patients or colleagues or family members or friends saying, well, wait a minute, I have diabetes or I have asthma or I'm just getting over fighting cancer. Don't I qualify? Well, I think uh, for folks who have a provider, that's really a question uh, that's on a case-by-case basis at this point. Many of the underlying conditions, uh, like, for example, uh, diabetes um, is a good example, um, do also cause immunocompromise. What we're also very concerned about is the folks who are, for one reason or another, on steroids. Mm-hmm. often for what we call autoimmune diseases, and that's diseases like lupus, mm-hmm. or rheumatoid arthritis. 
those folks also will have immune compromise. People living with HIV infection uh, who are virally suppressed and doing well on medication are often not immunocompromised, but people who are living with HIV and who are incompletely treated certainly would qualify. Um, and, uh, and as I said, these are less uh, really being thought of as boosters uh, and more being thought of as a third dose that's necessary for people who just really don't respond well enough to one or two doses. And there's an easy test, right, to figure out your immunity here, and that can help determine whether or not you need an additional vaccine. Is that fair? That's true. Okay. That's right. That's absolutely right. So when you look at out the headlines, I mean, I think safe to say we'd all were hoping that by this time we'd be well behind or in front of yeah. uh, COVID, yeah. not behind. It just feels like now we are again behind. Um, I don't know. What's the trajectory? What's the timeline that you look at that we can maybe get to a place where we don't think so much about this this virus and it's not so troubling? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have been in a kind of a race between the virus and its new variants and the vaccines and our immunization programs for some months. I think two things have have not gone in our favor. One is, first of all, uh, that the vaccine uh, rollout began to slow because of hesitancy uh, and has, you know, not been sufficient at only about 51 percent of all Americans eligible fully immunized. So that has to increase. And I think the the certainly the private sector mandates from companies and employers is likely to change that. Uh, the second problem is, of course, that the virus continues uh, to mutate and generate these new variants. And Delta, while virologists were not surprised by it, we all have been really, uh, I think, uh, impressed by the infectiousness of this virus. Mm-hmm. So the original Wuhan strain had a, a infectivity of about two to three meaning that for every person who was infected, they were likely to infect two or three more people. This Delta variant is in the five to nine range. It is wow. much more infectious. Uh, and uh, that, is, that is really driving these surges. Uh, and, of course, you put together low immunization coverage, the change in behavior with people ceasing to social distance and not, not wear masks, and the infectiousness of this virus, and that is why we are in the situation we're in. Looking ahead, we've got to do better with immunization. Mm -hmm. There is uh, an expectation, I think, that the FDA is going to fully approve the Moderna vaccine, Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, the Pfizer vaccine first, and then Moderna. And that's probably going to happen sort of in the the three to six week range for Pfizer. Uh, That will be important. There are a number of people who say that they don't want to take a vaccine until it's fully approved, and that's understandable. Uh, But once that is fully approved, I think that will change. And that will also change how many employers are willing to mandate. Right. One thing to mandate immunization with an emergency use authorization. Right. Another if you have a fully approved vaccine. Yeah, that certainly sounds like it would do uh, a lot to getting a lot more people vaccinated. We're going to talk about uh, that a little bit later on. Uh, Dr. Byer, so great to check in with you. Dr. Chris Byer over at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
Hey, this popped up on our radar. As companies and CEOs are grappling with getting workers and customers back to their businesses, we're seeing leaders try more stick and less carrot, especially as we see another uptick in cases caused by the Delta variant. So let's get the particulars on this. We've got the reporter on the story, Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Drake Bennett on the phone in New York City, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the remote access in Massachusetts. It does feel like, Joel, the days of, well, we'll give you a little bonus, we'll do this, we'll do that, just if you take the vaccine now it's like just take the vaccine yeah big, big shift and and that's what drake explored for this story um at, biggest thing of all is just that it went from sort of like employers trying to incent and, and even more than that even you know society trying to uh encourage with lotto tickets and you know right. bonuses and baseball tickets and whatever else you can throw at them to like no more no more mr mr nice guys um <laughs> we're seeing the the carrot go away in favor of something more resembling a stick. So, so Drake, walk us through what happened and sort of the historical precedent for some of this. Well, I think the uh, the turning point really, uh, well, besides, as you guys point out, the, the spread of the Delta variant um, and the fact that uh, you are seeing vaccination rates, you, ha- you were seeing them kind of level off. Um, but then you had this court decision, a federal court decision, in a, a lawsuit brought by some students at Indiana University, and uh, IU had uh, instituted a vaccine mandate, which, you know, some institutions were doing, you know, some hospital systems were doing it, some universities were doing it, but a lot of them weren't. Um, but the the federal judge upheld uh, Indiana University's um, mandate, and I think that really, that was sort of July 19th-ish, and, and since then, uh, along with the spread of Delta, I think that's driven this steady drumbeat of, of a lot of big employers, you know, tech companies, Google, um, Facebook, you know, Tyson's, you know, the big uh, meat processor, uh, Amazon, in different ways, they're all, they're all saying, you know, if you, A, if you want to come back to the office, you need to get vaccinated. Um, and if you're not going to get vaccinated, you know, you have to do all this testing. And like you guys said, there's really been this move away from we will we want people to do this thing. You know, there's a sign that, that some of the protesters outside one of the hospital headquarters were holding and that said, you know, vaccination, yes, mandates, no. <laughs> the idea is like, we like vaccinations, we think they're good, but who are we to like tell people what to do? And now it's just sort of like, all right. Isn't it? You know? <laughs> It's in, it's yeah. interesting though, and I just I just got off with a doctor, just talking with a doctor, Doctor Chris Byro over at Johns Hopkins, and just saying it'll go maybe a long way once the FDA says it's not just emergency use yeah. but full use uh, in terms of getting more people to get vaccines. But he credited to some extent companies kind of pushing it <laughs> on workers yeah. to to upping up some of the vaccine numbers that it's going to be important for that to happen in order for us to get you know close to something like herd immunity. It's interesting though. Drake, that vaccine mandates, it's not new, right? We got vaccines as kids. We just did it. Right. Right. Yeah. No, for, you know, every state in the union has some kind of vaccination requirement for schools. Um, and, you know, back during the smallpox, you know, the days of the smallpox epidemic, uh, the, a lot of states did. I mean, it was interesting then as now it was kind of like this social engineering experiment where some states had mandates some states were vehemently anti-mandate and a lot of other states were somewhere in between and you know one of the legacies of that is you can sort of see how effective these things are the the states that did have vaccine mandates of one form or another had a lot lot less smallpox than the ones that 
mm-hmm. that, that were anti-mandate. Well, we'll stick with that s- smallpox thing because I think when we when it was such a uh, a problem on such a large scale, and yet you know we weren't as in- interconnected as we are now. Obviously, what did, what did mm-hmm. we learn coming out of small, smallpox that has informed public health policy since? Well, one thing that came out of that is is the Supreme Court case that is is now being used to uphold vaccine mandates when they go to court. Um, the, there was a uh, a Swedish-born pastor in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who he actually had been vaccinated against smallpox back in Sweden um, and said he'd had a bad reaction to the shot, so he didn't want to get a new shot in Massachusetts. He didn't want his kids to have to get it. And so this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you know, yes, there are sort of issues around privacy and self-control here, but there are, there are bigger issues around uh, the sort of health of the community and, and this idea that it's, it's you know, people aren't doing this, then there's kind of, it defeats the purpose of the whole endeavor. So that, that's really been the kind of legal context where the, where the current um, sort of battles have played out. Would it help if President Biden came out and just said, all right, everyone, you got to get your vaccine. If there was some kind of federal mandate that came down, and is that even possible? I know other countries are certainly uh, taking yeah. steps towards that. Well, I mean, legally, yes, the, the federal, you know, the Supreme Court has said that the, the federal government, you know, could do that. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see it. I, I think there is not really the political will for that sort of a sweeping measure. And but, yeah, as you pointed out, in France and Italy, it, to varying degrees, have basically what are national vaccine mandates. Um, and I think what you've seen so far is vaccination rates have gone up, but you have also seen especially in France, um, these, these uh, big you know, national protests. So I think, you know, um, in a way, you know, it, it would, I, I think you would probably get more vaccinations here if, if there was kind of a bigger stick. I mean, I think there's a it, polling seems to suggest that there are some people who are real vaccine, you know, holdouts. And then there's a lot of people who are kind of squishier about it. Um, and so you would probably get some portion of those people to, to vaccinate if it became harder to, you know, live in society without it. I think, you know, the other the other thing to keep in mind there, Carol, is that mm-hmm. and we're, we're starting to see some indications of this from from Biden is that, you know, he's going to put some pressure on the FDA, uh, especially in the coming weeks to, to get that full authorization of the federal government, which. It, you could think of that as sort of like an interim step before anything that's yeah. resembling like a federal level mandate, because um, at least that way you've got something that is has the full blessing of the government and isn't just um, uh, an emergency youth authorization. Ex- so we, obviously, he's pushing hard on that. And we'll we'll see uh, what the FDA decides to do in the coming weeks. Yeah, exactly. That's something, too, that the doctor I talked to with at Johns Hopkins said that that would be a big, big step forward. Uh, no doubt about it. But I think about another story that's out on Business Week where you've got, you know, restaurant owners having to police <laughs> who's gotten the vaccine. And it's really putting a lot of individuals uh, in tough uh, positions at this point. Hey, uh, great story. Drake, thank you so much. Drake Bennett, he is Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg Business Week with us on the phone in New York City. And of course, our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Check out the double issue that is on newsstands right now on the Bloomberg terminal and always at uh, Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic.
on Bloomberg Radio. And as our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Tara LaChapelle, who covers the business of entertainment, telecommunications, and deals, writes, even Disney profits are not safe from the Delta variant. She joins us on the phone in New Jersey. Um, Disney, always an important one to watch. Uh, it's a well-known company. Investors like to see what this uh, one has to say about all of their moving parts. Tara, what are you watching out for? Tell us a little bit about your column today. Well, you know, I think in the middle of this pandemic, Disney is almost a travel bellwether in Hmm. some ways. So, you know, there was this data point that we've all been kind of waiting to see whether something would come out as far as people canceling flights, because that seems meaningful. That would mark a change from just sort of a vague general fear about the Delta variant being worse than what we were facing a few months ago versus people actually acting on it. And yesterday we had Southwest Airlines come out and say, and their profit warning to investors that people are starting to cancel flights this month and that it's because of the Delta variant. And I think that's really important because if people are hesitant about travel, Disney's biggest theme park, Disney World in Orlando, Florida, most of their guests travel from other states to get there. And so if people are starting to become hesitant, that doesn't bode well for what was looking like a pretty good recovery in that business for Disney. You're already starting to see Panel assessments starting to come down, becoming a little bit more pessimistic. We don't know how long that's going to last. Maybe this is a temporary thing, and I hope it is. But right now, you can at least feel that there's something changed just the last few days. Yeah, it is It is kind of a fast-moving, um, as I feel like so much of the virus has been, right, Tara, where we think we're on one course, and then all of a sudden something happens. And you write in your story that as recently as May – after Disney was finally able to reopen the two California theme parks, the average analyst estimate called for more than $120 million of operating profit from parks, experiences, and consumer products for the latest quarter. But analysts now expect just $41 million from that unit. That's a big move. That is. And that's, that's for the quarter that already closed. So that was a little bit before Delta really became a threat. But I think what it shows is that there's just a general uh, less optimism around this business I think analysts are listening to other earnings calls and hearing all these CEOs in different industries talk about inflation, talk about wage pressure, difficulty getting uh, their staff vaccinated. And you have all of that happening in the backdrop of needing to spend more on COVID mitigation measures and now suddenly Delta. So I think, you know, the last quarter's numbers, which we're going to hear about tonight from Disney, also Disney's commentary tonight about this current quarter is going to be even more important and you're seeing those estimates come down as well. Um, I, I think that it just shows that the business that was kind of at the, the, the bright spot in the mm-hmm. last earnings report, the parks, you know, we finally felt like we're starting to get back to almost normal. Now that's going to be a big concern. I bet you're going to have a lot of questions from analysts to CEO Bob Chapek tonight about that. Right. And you just reminded us, too, because the cruise, right, they have a cruise business, of course, as well. And that one of their first ships or the first ship, right, just set sail to the Bahamas this week. Yeah, just one. I think it was on Monday. It went from Mm -hmm. Florida to the Bahamas, and that was a really important moment. Cruises are a really good business for Disney. They had actually, just before the pandemic, invested in, I think, two new ships, and those are supposed to set sail in the next couple of years. So they're really putting a lot of money into that business. There's a lot of belief that Disney especially will come out uh, of the recovery really strong with cruises because they're seen as just a, a safer. They take safety very seriously. They're they're very all about the quality at Disney, and so there's this perception that 
that their cruises would be some of the best cruises to go on in a post-COVID world. Right. But again, you know, we're, we're being held back again by Delta, and it's just really unfortunate. Right, exactly. Having toured one of their ships, it was a new ship. I remember, I can't remember the name of it, but it was here in New York a few years ago. I mean, it's it's pretty stunning <laughs> uh, what they put on their ship and, and how they make it great for families, but also provide opportunities for kids to do one thing and parents to do another. So they really do think about that in a big way. So, all right, if parks are not the bright spot this time around, and we're starting, right, we're a little worried about streaming as well, uh, what might be the bright spot? You know, it's funny. I think it's going to be the cable TV, <laughs> what? which, of course, is not, you know, investors are never going to see that as a bright spot. No one wants to hear about media networks, but those are incredibly profitable for Disney. Disney has the highest price channel to this day in a basic cable package, and that is ESPN, charging almost $9 a month per subscriber. So everyone that still has cable, you are subsidizing ESPN, I mean, you're really lining Disney's pockets. And and that business is going to be a cash cow for them for a while, and they need that as they transition to streaming. But again, investors do not want to hear about that business. They want to hear that Disney is adding loads and loads of subscribers to Disney+. Plus. They want to hear that Disney+, Plus is going to beat Netflix. And I just don't think that today's earnings report is going to uh, be... It's sort of in, in in that in that realm, I think it's going to be a little bit more like, well, we added subscribers, but growth slowed a little bit because of reopenings, yada yada. Yeah, exactly. And I was just going to take a look. What is Dis- what are Disney shares doing right now? Uh, ba 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 They're ch- they're like down about one percent this year. So investors really need, I guess, something big, right, to move the needle. Just got about thirty seconds here. Yeah, you know, to put that in context, though, they're still outperforming Netflix. Netflix is down even more this year. So there's just a lot of consternation around the streaming wars still. I think that Disney is in a good spot overall. Their stock price is quite rich at this level. They're now in in the Netflix uh, sort of category in Mm -hmm. terms of their PE multiple. So, you know, there's just a lot of faith around Disney, and we'll see what happens. I haven't looked at it in a while. 1,379, almost 1,380 is their current PE. You're not kidding uh, in the uh, Netflix realm. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up that Thursday trade. Uh, Charlie, of course, breaking down those numbers. S&P hovering near highs of the day, up about uh, almost 12 points for another record. Dow, though, going in the other direction by that amount. And the NASDAQ bucking the downward trend that we've seen over the last couple of days, but it is up about 49 points, hovering near its best levels. So let's get to it, the drive to the close with Mace McCain, President, Managing Director, and Chief Investment Officer at Frost Investment Advisors, with us on the phone from Colorado. The firm, by the way, has one, uh, excuse me, has $5.1 billion in assets under management. Uh, Mace, good to have you here. It feels like things are slowing down a little bit. Is that because earnings are over, we're waiting for what we might get next from the Fed. What is it? How do you see it? Yes, we are in a waiting period for the Fed. But I think the Fed direction is pretty well set going into year end. Um, so they've set a direction to uh, start um, 
tightening up through uh, reducing their purchases somewhere around your end. So that's set, and uh, that'll be a waiting period for that. Okay. Are investors ready to see the Fed start to back off on uh, some of those measures? Yes, I think they are. I mean, they've done a good job of preparing us, uh, told us what conditions are going to have to be in place, and, and they've done uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, preparing us and getting us ready, and I think that the uh, investment side is, is ready for them to slow their purchases. Okay, so having said that, we continue to see, I think we were up to, what is it, 46 records on the S&P 500. Uh, We've got uh, the Dow a little bit uh, lower today, so maybe not another record for the Dow today. We continue to see stocks in many ways churn higher today, very tight trading range. Uh, Does that momentum continue? Would you like to see uh, a little bit of a correction? I, I think we are susceptible to correction. We've gone a long way without a correction. But as you pointed out, the, we just got through the earnings season, and the earnings season was so strong, it's it's hard to have corrections when uh, the Fed's accommodative and um, and earnings are uh, surprising across the board uh, through almost all industries. Okay, so how would you play the market at this point? I think that we're going to see the, uh, you know, we're going to get see to continue to see strong interest in equities. Uh, you know, they we're seeing bonds trade off today. Uh, we do not look at bonds as an attractive asset class uh, over the next year uh, that they remain vulnerable. So I think that the uh, equities are going to still continue to attract capital. So we're still uh, bullish on the equity market. Okay, bullish on the equity market. The equity market is big, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> so when you break it down, whether it's sectors – uh, industries, particular names. We love as specific as you can be. So tell us where you would commit new money at this point. Sure. We, we continue to like long-term themes. We're looking for themes that have uh, will endure through trading activity in the short term. So the things we continue to like are cloud computing, artificial intelligence, big data. Uh, we think we're early in the shift in many of those trends. Uh, we could see them continue for the next several years, and we want to be uh, overweight in those areas. Uh, on a cyclical basis, uh, we're still uh, bullish on housing. Uh, you know, the Fed remains accommodative, and uh, we think that the U.S. is underinvested in housing since 2008. So we have a long catch-up period there, a long, longer period as millennials continue to do their household formation. And uh, we think that'll be a strong area. Where don't you want to be right now? <laughs> oh, um, where, where don't we want to be? Uh, I would China besides bonds <laughs> or treasuries. <laughs> treasuries is one area, and China is another. We really yeah. don't want to be investing in China heavily at this point. Uh, we think there's still a lot of problems. Uh, to come in our relationship with China. Well, it's interesting that you say that because here we had another day. Uh, I was looking at some of the movers in today's session. Baidu was uh, one of them uh, down in today's session, and that had to do with uh, putting out a conservative outlook. But again, the crackdown that we're seeing by uh, Chinese officials on the internet industry, but that's continuing to expand. And we just saw China overnight releasing a five-year plan calling for greater business regulation. And so now they're uh, stepping up scrutiny of the insurance technology platforms. It feels like a moving target. So is is your thinking about this is just to stay away until things kind of work their way out? 
Yes, we tend to be long-term investors. We're not going to hop into a trade. Mm-hmm. And so short-term activity on, well, on changes in government activity there is not going to interest us. We're more interested in the fact that we think the relationship uh, in between the United States and China is headed in a more negative direction. And so uh, we're less excited about investments there. You seem pretty calm about the environment. So what's the risks out there? What is What are the issues that people, maybe investors or clients say, okay, this is what we're concerned about and, and what's your response to them? Well, we are going to have to go through the third quarter earnings. And you know, remember, mm. the third quarter of 2020 was a uptick in the economic activity, quite a big one. Retail sales in the third quarter of 2020 were up uh, 70% year over year. GDP was up 39%. So these easy comparisons we've had quarterly, quarter quarter to quarter in economic activity and growth are going to slow in the uh, third quarter. So uh, the the positive news is not going to be quite so positive. We still, still think it's going to be positive, but the the rate of growth is going to be slowing. So well, we're going to have to work through that. And that's a really good point. I mean, we are we all have some kind of high hopes for the third and fourth quarters of getting back to more quote-unquote normal when it comes to economic growth and the Fed easing back so that we really get a truer picture of what's going on in terms of economic growth. Having said that, you know, we had some headlines about Facebook rolling back when it's bringing its workers back, AT&T, you know, mandating um, vaccines and talking about that. Uh, Companies are really trying to figure out ways to get workers back to the office. Could, though, uh, COVID, uh, the Delta variant or another variant certainly change the whole scenario about things kind of getting back to normal? I, I think that the, the momentum back to normal is probably irreversible. I don't think people are going to embrace another shutdown. And mm. I think the people actually are going to make the determine how much they're going to be shut down and what they're going to participate in. I think um, I'm out west today. I'm out in Colorado. And, and you can feel it out here that there's, there's a limit to how much lockdown they're going to take and how much uh, they're going to reverse the trends. All right, really interesting. What's the big surprise that you think, though, could that maybe hold for us in the uh, the rest of the year? I think the PPI number that came out last year, being, last week, being so hot, was was a very important number, six point two percent year over year. So I think we're going to continue to see the CPI run hot for this year. So we're going to continue to deal with inflation headlines. That's going to be what we're going to have to deal with. Right. And having some today and of course, CPI yesterday. And so uh, certainly seemed moderate, a little bit hotter today in the read on producer price indexes, but uh, a lot of signs that much of it is, is transitory, but you're right. We'll have to see what those longer-term trends are. Hey, Mace, thank you so much. Mace McCain, he is Chief Investment Officer at Frost Investment Advisors, $5.1 billion in assets under management, joining us on the phone from Colorado. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.